0: You've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton.
1: And welcome to another splentacular episode of the Paranoia Podcast. I am Olaf Phillips. I am the. Uh, publisher of Paranoia and publisher at large, uh, Ron Patton, my esteemed co-host, is off on a ghost hunt with uh, Clyde from Ground Zero. He will not be on the podcast tonight. Unfortunately, I'm doing it solo. Thankfully, I have an amazing guest um, who I'm. we will have a hell of a chat uh, that I can guarantee. Uh, no doubt it will twist and turn because my esteemed guest, who I'm very honored to have on the The podcast with me tonight has a wealth of experience and has done some crazy stuff and can speak to just about anything uh, in ufology and the golden age of ufology. Um, He knew a lot of the the movers and the shakers of the time period, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, So tonight we have uh, Alan Greenfield, uh, the author of Secret Rituals of the Men in Black and the Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots. Which I have published as one combined entity, the uh, complete cipher of the UFO. Not a book everybody should have, and I'm not just saying that because I publish it. Um everybody. The secrets held. Everybody. The secrets held within it uh, are the gateway to just so much information and experiences that you could have if you if you read it, you digest it, you understand it, and you use it. It is a workbook it is not a book it is a workbook that teaches you and explains to you at least one option of what's going on and i i think it's a pretty damn good option <laughs> um, but you know i'm going to skip the bio uh i'll i let alan introduce himself um but i am just so grateful and honored that he came on in the middle of the night to him uh, to have a chit-chat with me about some really weird stuff. So, Alan, welcome to the podcast. I am honored to
2: be here and uh, glad to answer any questions you might have, if I'm allowed to by the yes. secret chiefs.
1: <sighs> now, now I, I, I am a long-held fan of yours. I, I love the interviews you do, and and we'll get – to, to some of the really interesting uh, observations that you've made about the golden age of ufology and the Mothman and a lot of that stuff, but one of the main reasons that I I uh, got you on tonight is <clears throat> so I'm like anybody else, right? I watch TV. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, I watch Bering Sea Gold* and <laughs> a lot of crap, but. <clears throat> uh, one day I got a message from a friend of mine named Taylor and Taylor has a great podcast called Podcastico where he talks about uh, Dr. Who and stuff three plug um, Taylor sends me a message and he says, Oh my God, Olaf, you've got to watch a show. And I had been hearing about this show for a long time and I had put it off and I'm like, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it. It's called Hellier. And, and he's like, you've got to watch it. you got to watch it. I'm like, no, I know the Paul Hellier thing. You know, I don't understand how the Minister of Defense of a country doesn't hear about anything about UFOs, but suddenly he's an expert about UFOs. I've seen plenty of interviews. I'm going to skip the skip to the next one. <laughs> There's another episode of Gold Rush. I, you know, I got to get on the ball here. And he kept he was very insistent, and he kept pushing me. You gotta watch. Gotta watch. Gotta watch it. So I finally sit down. He's like, it's not about Paul Haley. So I, I watch it. About Three minutes into it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the secret cipher of the UFO knots, right? And it, it's just every – it's all – this, it's like secret cipher of the UFO knots like everywhere. And then they show the book, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I know this. So I watch it, and it is a great show. Everybody should watch it, but um, the, he kept on me and asked me more and more questions. And so I thought, and I finally said, you know what, Taylor, the guy who really needs to answer these questions and to explain what some of this stuff is that's going on, you know, um, the, the, the story behind what you're seeing and the, the explanations that you don't really get in the show is, is Greenfield. I've got to get Alan Greenfield on and I, I've been wanting to have you on for a bazillion years. So Here we go. Uh,
2: Well, you know, to ask is to receive. To knock is to open the (laughs) creaking door now. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so uh, I think I I, I hit a um, kind of epiphany some years ago, not, you know, in the way back time, but uh, some years ago, that investigators of any of these aspects, and I think they are aspects of the same uh, ultimate uh, truth, or penultimate truth, uh, even though uh, the researchers in general, there are (laughs) exceptions, tend to isolate their particular turf and act like they're a tribe and they don't want to deal with the other tribes. You know, uh, 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 cryptid researchers don't like to be associated with UFOs. UFO researchers don't like to be associated with uh, um, um, occultists. Occultists definitely don't want anything to do with ufology. That's in the book. I mean, there's a long footnote (laughs) towards the back of the book that is aimed directly Uh, I had a conversation I had with the grand Poobah, the O.T.O., trying to talk me out of publishing that part of the book. And I basically, without mentioning his name, Bill Brees, I uh, I wouldn't want to mention Bill's name because Bill is a very private uh, Poobah. But, uh, you know, it goes with the territory. uh, Be that as it may, I'm sitting in his car riding down from where he lived at the time to – Uh, An initiation I talked him into giving to a a deserving person in Atlanta, and he spends the whole time telling me, you know, you've got to stop doing this UFO stuff because it's actually UFO and a cult. I think you will bear witness to that and uh, sort of integrates the two, and he says, you know, UFOs are, 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 are not very, very well respected. And I thought, what do you think the occult is?
1: <laughs> you think <laughs> yeah.
2: this is this is yeah. what the you know it just isn't. Uh, I I know I'm a sort of a polling bug, and I know that there's a lot more uh, public acceptance of UFOs in one you know right. to one degree or another than there is of so the occult, which is generally perceived to be uh, black magic and either yeah. totally superstition or totally evil. Uh, Neither of which, in my humble opinion, is true. But uh, there he's going. And the whole time, he's playing a demo tape of him jamming with the band Psychic TV. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? It was very amusing as as we passed uh, uh, this, uh, actually a place that is known for its secret entrances to the underworld. But uh, I didn't even mention that to him. I just said, oh, well, you know... Bill, I have to do what I have to do. And he said, well, you lost right. a grand large office over it. I said, well, you know, what will be, will be. But uh, right. uh, that, that kind of resistance is there. And then I had this epiphany, as I said, that what happens is that the researchers, however objective they start out to be, if they mm-hmm. actually go out into the field... I mean, not, you know, you and me talking at home, and I'm sitting in my grandmother's chair here comfortably right. ensconced in northwest Atlanta, where I'm from. Used to be called the Golden Ghetto for reasons that probably were not germane to the program. But uh, in any case, um, they become part of the phenomena itself, not necessarily the one they're looking for. If they're out looking for Bigfoot, they start seeing UFOs and then they see a Bigfoot or they find a footprint that seems to be an oversized footprint of a what used to be the image of Neanderthals before they suddenly became uh, I cover this on my Facebook page all the time you know that the the revisions on uh, the Neanderthals they started out as these uh, brutish, quasi-human, yeah, brutish, and now they're saying
1: over, that they knew
2: how to use fire, that they may have had right. writing, that you know, that, 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 and that we are descended yeah. from them, so yep. uh, in part, and uh, and that in fact that particular line of descent has been very helpful to the uh, so-called higher human race in uh, resisting in resistance to certain diseases and so forth. So they're. Yep. Today's news was that apparently about fifteen thousand, and this is from only from straight scientific news sources. Uh, you know, it's very easy to go to you know ancient this or uh, you know right. find find the guy with big hair says yeah it's aliens, but uh, apparently right, yeah. there was uh, there was a catastrophe about fifteen thousand years ago, uh, uh, which is in geological time, nothing, that uh, uh, was a near extinction level event, just like the one that had been so many years before that with the dinosaurs, uh, which was also total heresy when I was, you know, young and foolish, or not because I believed it, but that's what they taught, you know, so uh, 15,000 years ago is very significant. That's During the last major ice age, it May explain the extinction of, which I always took to be, people hunting them down. But it may have been the extinction of the saber-toothed tiger and the woolly mammoth, mammoth. and and also it begins to get dangerously close to Velikovsky. You know, yes, it does, because the 15,000 year ago collision didn't happen as far as science was concerned as of a month ago, apparently, (laughs) but now it. Now it did happen 15,000 years ago. Right. So, how much of a leap is it to say maybe Velikovsky was right on the money when he said in the at the time of the collapse of the late Bronze Age, which is still a fairly mysterious thing, maybe there right. was uh, a similar event at that time, you know, a close brush or something that uh, disrupted the civilizations of that time. To me, sure. it's not a big leap, but. Uh, 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 It seems to get closer and closer to the crazy stuff that I'm into, uh, which is less and less crazy. point is that you can't be a detached researcher in this area. It's all about field research. And if you haven't been out in the field, if you're just reading about it, you are not getting it. If you're watching it on TV, you definitely aren't getting it. If you're reading it on the Internet, you have no idea what's truth and what isn't truth. But if you get out there, you become part of the phenomena, and that's you know that's the revelation that I had. So well, revelation we'll say epiphany. <laughs> I, sure. I did not write the book of revelations, and if I did, I'm not disposed <laughs> to discuss it. But well, uh,
1: not... there's there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. You know, when I obviously I go out in the field and I do stuff, and um, you know, 15 seconds on Google and you'll figure that out, and at one point I had gone to East SETI, the, the James Gilliland ranch. And, you know, I'm there at, it's like a Friday night. The craziness is just off the hook. You know, there's weird things flying through the sky. There's orbs, all kinds of weird kind of behavior. And, you know, there are certain things that you can kind of work out. Okay. Well, that's some, that's some sort of a, you know, super secret plane, or I saw an Aurora, uh, the plane, not the Aurora. I've seen the Aurora too, but, um, but it's, you know, some of it you can explain as conventional other things you cannot. And I saw a lot of weird lights moving across the surface of Mount Adams and, and doors opening. Like there was something, it looked like a, like a hangar, you know, with a garage door that opened on the side, all this weirdness. So long comes Saturday, I wake up, you know, I have some breakfast during the day. There's not really a whole lot to do there. So we're sitting around and about midday, we're sitting around. We'd, we'd had lunch and we're sitting at a, at a picnic table and I'm playing Tetris. And I just, I love Tetris and I'm playing Tetris. And, uh, one of my friends, um, he elbows me and he says, you got to see this. you got to see this." I'm like, no, 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 I'm playing Tetris. I'm having like the best game over. Leave me alone. No, 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 no! You really got to see this. So finally, after a lot of poking, which is apparently my mo, he turn. I turn around and I look, and climbing up the side of the face of the mountain, and I'm I'm probably I don't know 15 miles from the Ooh. mountain, above the tree line in a, in a snow field that's probably about 45 degrees, maybe 55 degrees. There's these two black things climbing up the side of the mountain. And I can see them with my naked eye at, at 20, 15 miles. And we watched them for over an hour climb up the side of a mountain. And they, you, they were so big that you could see their gait. You could see the, the way they were walking, the weird, abnormally long gait. And, the, you know, you could kind of see them, like, rocking back and forth. And we watched them until they climbed to the top of the mountain. And then they stood on what I think was some sort of a crevasse. And then they descended down into the mountain. And so my other friend, Chris, he – I'm an engineer, but I'm the wrong engineer to do that kind of math. He's the right engineer to do that math, so he did the math to figure out how big it was. And we figured they were about 8 or 10 feet tall. And we watched them for an hour at least. And the only thing we could figure out is that it's Bigfoot. So to to come back to what you were saying – you know, and that night, more U- UFOs, for lack of a better term, more hangers opening the side of the mountain. I saw a vortex that, that looked like the Stargate from Stargate SG-1 hang in midair. I watched things come out of it, things go in it, nothing going through it, right? But the thing that that, that I went back to was that, okay, and then we had a Bigfoot sighting inside of the <clears throat> inside of the encampment. And which Clyde saw Bigfoot running through the camp. And you know, he, okay, objectively you can say, well, th- these are two different things. I've got a mountain in common, but I've got Bigfoot, and I've got weird lights and UFOs and all weird stuff in general. But the reality is, is that I'm seeing all this weird stuff, and then I'm seeing Bigfoot, and then I'm seeing weird stuff, and I can't believe that there's they're not interconnected somehow which is basically what you're saying. So, exactly. you know, if I mean, you,
2: I mean yeah. what is the likelihood of seeing two unconnected, strange, fringe phenomena in the same, you know, same little location, at same general period of time uh, right. within, what, hours or days? Uh, it's just, it hours. defies, uh, you know, well, yeah, there you see, that's, it, it, it defies reason to say that, oh, these these are independent, and I just hit it really lucky that day. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's probably the same thing in a different form. Now, I right. think there's a good argument to say that this has a lot to do with quantum physics and that it may be with the many worlds interpretation. Maybe right. there's a crossover here, there, and everywhere, and
1: yeah, that's things come through
2: that are beasties and and long-legged, you know, whatever, and the form that it manifests for our poor uh, 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 five-cents sensory system is not so uh, uh, – we're really not suited to really resolving whatever these things are as they actually are. In addition, they may have a, a um, an intentional uh, obscuring of of their um, actual nature. So what right. you're seeing are these huge beings that you take to be Bigfoot, for lack of a better term. I mean, the term Bigfoot right. means. I don't think if there is a Bigfoot, he calls himself Bigfoot. You know, right. I mean, it's and I, uh, would agree. I don't think orbs call themselves orbs but there are certain places where spooky stuff happens and when spooky stuff happens you get absorbed into it and then all of a sudden uh, it becomes part of your life it's like i can't read anything by my favorite author the late great philip k dick without yes. synchronicity happening within an hour of 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 reading it and that's been going on since i've been reading him since he was a pulp pulpish writer for Ace Books in the 1950s, uh, it, it's happened so many times that I don't even, you know, bother to write it down anymore because it's uh, it's just part of my life. I mentioned it, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, when we get through with the program, I turn up the TV and it's, you know, uh, something <sighs> by Philip K. Dick. I mean, it would just not phase me at all. Or something about a high castle, or something, you know, whatever. It's ubiquitous, as one of his books uh, uh, points out. So, um,
1: um, and it it goes back. Yeah, and it it goes back. I mean, you know, they have a lot of UFO sightings, and then there's the Mothman. You go to Skinwalker Ranch, they got ghosts, they got cryptids, they got UFOs, they've got cattle mutilation. I mean, it's all in the same place
2: or you know, it's a portal and what comes through is uh that's how we interpret it in the you know you you can list them but something new is going to come through like all of a sudden there are more black-eyed kids uh and black-eyed adults interestingly enough uh, uh cases after a lull of some time there are a lot of mothman cases in the midwest right now why right. mothman for years was uh uh, uh, supposedly confined to West Virginia d- t- During a very narrow time frame in the late 1960s But actually I think Thunderbird sightings Which have, you know, right. encrypted researchers Can tell you more than, than me about that But they they have gone on and have been going on for eons As Keel and sure. other researchers have pointed out And now they are Mothman type things again in Indiana, in Illinois, particularly around Chicago, which is ominous, I think, uh, big city, uh, sure. Mothman said to be, and also <laughs> the movie The Mothman Prophecies, which I like better than the book, actually, um, has that mood. And it, part of it is set in Chicago and it finds this guy who no longer does research into these things because – it ruined his life, which is, I'm sure it's a story that you know from other people, and, yes, and I know as absolutely. well it's a, uh, uh, an awful thing, but it happens, and it, it should happen. be fair warning to the faint of heart not to get involved with any of this stuff. But in any it is case, a they're showing, and then all of a sudden now we're getting more black-eyed kids reports after uh, I mean, I don't think that it's the media, because I scanned literally hundreds of of news items only from reputable sources with the exception of right. a few English uh, tabloids that just seem to cover things that nobody else does and they're not the yes. national, you know, what, uh, yes. the, 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 the skeptical national or whatever the, <laughs> uh, Godzilla ate my children, uh, uh, that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, uh, well, the Inquirer. <coughs> well, Inquirer actually has become a, uh, Less about that and more about political bizarreness now. But uh, it has but now. Yeah, it, it it, its competitors. Uh, uh, you know the, the 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 Weekly World News. I think it's the worst of them. Oh yeah. The yep. And I mean, they just well. I think just invent things right off the top of their head. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they become manifest. You know, if you say that mm-hmm. there are reptilians among us, uh, one of these days. Uh, you're going be. to run into a real reptilian, because reality seems to be a lot more plastic in the sense of, not in the hippie sense of, you know, phony, but in the sense of right. it's malleable. And if you start to think that something is the case, it kind of becomes the case. Not exactly as you would expect, of course, but it becomes the case. So, well, and that's
1: that's... That's also an argument for the tulpa, right? The concept of the tulpa—that if you put, if you put that out, then you'll manifest it. Right? You're the
2: second person today to mention tulpas to me.
1: Now, <laughs> what are the okay. odds?
2: I mean, it's not like I wake up and somebody <clears throat> knocks on my door and says, "What do you know about tulpas?" You know, I mean, but uh, <laughs> but that happens to me so much <laughs> that it's only on the moment. I even with some people, I use capital letters and I say, Sink because yep. somebody, you know, halfway across the country, which actually you're all the way across the country somewhere, somewhere out on the left coast, uh, uh, yep. which is I am. still there, though on fire, apparently. But uh, yes, um, close
1: to my house. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I could I have make a question, suggestion, by the way, but I'm not, I'm not going to be crude.
1: <laughs> I, I have but a I, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that later. I have a question about that, but I'll, I'll get into that later. <laughs> I do not
2: put out fires in California. No. <laughs> Nor do I so start them, despite. This, well, there's a story about the uh, the uh, the place where they were growing the unicorns and the green egg people, and but you know that's up in Ukiah I don't think they have fires up there, or do they? I don't know. Oh, they do. You know your mm-hmm. your your associate, uh, uh, the guy that does the radio program in. Portland or Seattle or Clyde one of them. yes Clyde Clyde thinks that I raised a storm in his town by doing a magical ritual on his show and <laughs> I don't raise storms I'm not a witch and I'm, I'm not a black magician I did an invocation of an angel but apparently the next day there was something like a tornado on the uh, whatever the body of water there is and
1: yeah the river uh,
2: and the the rumor was he thought you know and said that uh, I had raised it with him. I don't mind you know because I am <laughs> as some people say infamous
1: infamous so, yes
2: infamous Beware. beware
1: <laughs> now now beware. I have a question that, I have a question that, that relates to the to the the show to hellier so one of, one of the things that happens in the show, and like I said, I've only seen season one, and spoilers ahead if you haven't seen it, is that they, they seem to get involved with a guy named Terry Rist. Now, before we get into who Terry Rist is to them, the question I had, I, obviously I read the, the conversation interview that you did with Rist that's in the back of the book. Well they're two you, interviews, but yeah, I don't know,
2: did you did you put them together or I mean I don't know
1: No, you... I put them separate. Okay. They're they're separate to keep them in context, the they're separate. But one of the things that, that you're when you're interviewing Rist, you refer you make a comment about him being a secret chief.
2: Did I? I mean, that is a long time ago, you know. It's like
1: I can't... Yeah, no, I understand. uh,
2: Because of Hellyer, I've gotten a lot of questions about Terry, who I haven't seen since uh, mid-1990s, I think it was, but uh, uh, like 1995, 96, because I was out of the Atlanta area writing the very book that uh, you have been kind enough to publish. Uh, I went down to my hometown, Augusta, Georgia, and wrote that. When Uh I got back, Terry was no longer here, and that doesn't surprise me. He was not a... An Atlanta person. Uh, there were two yeah. really fascinating people here. One was Kerry Thornley, who is now dead, and Terry, who I right. don't know. I do know that I uh, gave him a lot of my Shaver stuff. Uh, right. Well, loaned him is what I thought, but including <laughs> rock that Shaver had sent me that were part of this, you know, his rock art.
1: Rock and rock. he would yeah. send me
2: sl- uh, He'd send me a uh, Manila envelope full of these rocks and say, "Look at the." Images in the rocks, and I would think right. this looks kind of like if you had the right kind of projector. It's kind of like a hologram or a slide, or you know something like that. He made slides. Yeah, I've
1: seen you know? that. I've seen that in Shaver, the Shaverton. The
2: oh yeah, the, you know, the Shaver, yeah. Shaver Shaver was a wacko guy, but he was brilliant as well. Anyway, I I, I think that uh, that Terry was real interested in Shaver. I only knew him for a short period of time, and the context that I knew him in was probably something that I will say in very abbreviated form because that explains something. I had a nom de guerre during that period, and I assume uh-huh. Terry R. Rist is a nom de guerre. In the circle right. I ran in, you didn't ask people, well, what is your Christian name or Jewish name in my case, but uh, – uh, you right. just didn't ask, so I, I never did. But he was older than me and about three years, so he would be in his mid-70s now. And he was a hale and hearty guy, so I think he's probably still out there somewhere, probably doing the stuff that he was doing in those interviews. <laughs> but get him to sit down for those was almost as hard as getting Carrie Thornley to sit down for an interview, which I finally did, uh, which I think may be lost, uh, which is a shame because he has gone on to that uh, – that great uh, anarchism in the sky. but uh, the interview was done at Eulis Lodge OTO with, uh, with the, the then master of the lodge, uh, Bill Paget and myself and a couple of other members of the lodge chiming in. And, uh, but to keep Carrie uh, on subject was impossible. To get Terry, the rhyme is not intentional. To get Terry off a subject was impossible. I mean, you know, he was on this uh, shaver and serious thing, and that, that's very much of interest to me, very influential on me. It was already, of, you know, something that I had delved into. But there are other things that I would, you know, like to ask about. And, of course, I have not seen him nor my shaver stuff since then. Rocks are gone. <laughs> Slides there are gone, go. and my 1940s copies of Amazing Stories and Fantastic oh, and man. other things with Shaver material are, as they say, gone with the wind. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm.
1: And so I do the, the, the <laughs> so the the I would so the the reference to the secret chief for for our listeners who are not aware what is a secret chief.
2: Okay, that really is jumping – I mean, you know, I say they're all connected, but okay. Okay, I think, based on my uh, knowledge of the subject, that the term secret chiefs is identical in its underlying meaning to terms like ascended master or uh, – in other words, these are – or or the my favorite are the ones that uh called the Guardians that uh uh um was a, a very, very early on part of uh, Borderland Sciences uh, uh Can I say right. that in English? Let me <laughs> I don't have an English word for that. I'm going to think okay. in Yiddish. If when I'm dying I'll probably <laughs> babble on and in Yiddish. Oi, in my head. But um, uh, it's a concept that doesn't involve extraterrestrials. In fact, I'm not even sure there are any extraterrestrials. There are ultra-terrestrial things, beings. Right. But these are human beings who have accelerated to the point that they are uh, to switch uh, genres a bit. They're the equivalent of the bodhisattva in Buddhism. That is, someone who has evolved to the point that they are capable of entering nirvana, whatever that is, I'm not enlightened enough to really know, but it's that right. you know ultimate state, the equivalent of the Western magical ipsissimus, but choose not to. Instead, choose to remain as helpers to the human race. So I, I, I have no idea what I was saying in 1995, where Terry was concerned. Maybe it was to get a rise out of him. But of course, my my views on the secret chiefs have evolved since my uh, fortunate departure from the uh, order of misplaced Templars, uh, a.k.a. the corporate OTO. I'm definitely 12 years, I think, yeah, twelve years away from that, and into free Illuminism, which is doesn't have a hierarchy and isn't run by anybody, least of all me. So, right. um, uh, in the OTO and AA, and you know, Crowley. Well, I won't say generated, but Crowley-associated groups. The term secret chiefs means like the beings that uh, allegedly communicated to him the book of the law and so forth and right. you'd have to tell me the context because I I haven't uh, read those interviews and I think somewhere there's a recording of one of them but I'm not sure I mean you know th- sure I, if so it probably would have been transferred from cassette to floppy disk and that's where right. it lies Yeah, because the technology not only has changed, but it has rendered the previous archival technologies useless. So I have a box full of uh, CDs and DVDs, and uh, I finally threw away my all of my cassette tapes because I had transferred the ones that were important, or the ones I could deem important, to uh, CD uh, years ago. But I still have Stanton Friedman saying why I was wrong about ultra-terrestrials and why it was obviously E.T. phoning home. But, uh,
1: <laughs> I'd like to hear that one.
2: Stan is gone now and
1: yeah, he
2: may is. he rest in obscurity. So
1: <laughs> he
2: once asked me if I could get in touch with my CIA contacts to find out if uh, if uh, Philip Class was a was a uh, part of the disinformation campaign. And we're sitting in a taxi in New York. I don't know how long ago this was, a long, long time ago. And I right. thought, uh, why is he asking me? I, I i don't think I have any CIA contacts. It turns <laughs> out I had a cousin who was in the CIA, but that was, you know, I didn't even know that. I, That's I, a cousin. Yeah. Well, and the,
1: well, the context was... Oh, go
2: ahead. Uh, he was uh, the, the cousin. I only found out about belatedly. The guy was retired and uh, on his in his final years, but he was trying to look himself up on the internet, probably because people in that sort of thing uh, want to know if they've, their name has come up anywhere. And his name was. I believe he's deceased, so it's probably okay to mention his name. His name was the same as my paternal grandfather's name because he had the same paternal grandfather. I mean, he was, you know, his first cousin. And, uh, right. and his father was my father, one of my father's brothers. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, my name came up. His didn't, but mine came up, and he went to my genealogy site and uh, and gave me a call and I learned a lot of things. He was ex-Marine and then he was in the CIA and blah, 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 blah. But I never heard from him. He told me a lot of stuff. We had a long conversation so I was able to sure. add to my genealogy stuff. I know a lot more about my mother's family who I grew up among than my father's family who I did not. Um, right. uh, my father came south during the Depression because he couldn't find work in his Native Baltimore, so it was. Uh, uh, and by the time I came along, his, you know, his family was distant, and his mother apparently passed away three months after I was born. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, there were, that was his last close connection uh, there. So I think I visited with his family once, and the next time I saw any of them was at his funeral, literally, you know, many, wow. many years later. So um, I found out a great deal from this guy. Al, Al Green, Another Al Greenfield. Uh, uh, right. And. Um, um, no, it, it's intentional, I think. My grandfather's name was Alfred. And my father's name was Albert. Mine is Alan. Oh. And my eldest son is Alexander Greenfield. So, you know.
1: Very much intentional.
2: Yeah, it's intentional. And of course, Al is. An interesting term in Hebrew, Arabic, and other uh, Middle Eastern mystical lore. Uh, but you know, I I wasn't thinking about that when they named me no. because
1: you weren't I, thinking I, about. It that much.
2: I was I was a little young, and before I could yeah. protest, uh, they were having a ceremony and whacking off the end of my. Well, you know, I mean.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
2: I was a little so, drunk. That's the custom, <laughs> and don't remember and don't know what it's like, and that's
1: that's good. I really so the, got
2: off the topic com- there, didn't I?
1: No, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're a, we're a tangential podcast.
2: We go off oh, on the, a lot of tangents. You know, I was I was explaining to uh, to a very close friend of mine, that Michelle, who is an adept, and in fact. She's the only person I've shown Hellier to, and she said, Oh, that is terrific. And she's interested in production values as well as anything else, oh, yeah. I think, you know, Very just high. on that. Uh, I'm not. Uh, stop me if I do any. I'm a terrible person on spoilers. Boy, I do say terrible in the
1: other No, no, go, way. go right ahead.
2: Terrible? It's all terrible, terrible what's going on out there. But. Uh, uh, if you haven't seen Season 1 of Helter, it's all available in, I think, five parts uh, for free or nothing on YouTube, and I highly recommend that. And uh, the second season will be out on Amazon the end of next month. And right. uh, and it will be out free for all, I guess on uh, I presume on YouTube. I'm not really sure where uh, in early December or sometime in December. And but you, the second season, I don't know whether that would be meaningful if you didn't. So you know, it's it's yeah, not a binge. I think you can watch it all in you know a couple of hours. But uh, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, well, it took me right. two nights, but uh, you know, it was doing other things as well. I do a lot of binging TV stuff. Um, I think I have done every mystery science theater and Riff Tracks episode that there is, uh, which is a bad deal because I find myself riffing every movie that I see, which when you're doing Schindler's List is really not a good idea, you know?
1: No. You uh, should try Cinema Cinema Insomnia by by my bud... uh, Mr. Lobo. Give that one a uh, give that one a crack.
2: I, I I will I will endeavor to do so even as we speak.
1: <laughs> well so the context the context was that you were having a a, a somewhat wide ranging conversation with him and it's it's very abrupt that you're you're talking to him about various things and he's and then you say some something to the effect of I have a did you, I forget how you put it, but it, it was something to the effect of, "I, th- I think you're in a sudden, or I think you're a secret chief." And his response was, "Oh yeah, whatever." And then he changed his subject and and moved on. And he was very, very, and I think he brought it up again, and then he dodged it again. He was very like um, noncommittal about it. That he he really didn't want to discuss it was the sense I got.
2: Yeah, that's probably because, uh, um, like I said, we were basically, connect- although we had a shared interest in uh, high weirdness, for lack of a better term, right. um, we knew one another uh, through a radical political group that, uh, after one of our... After a misunderstanding with one of our Canadian brethren groups, we decided to all take noms de guerre. Uh, it doesn't mean we were blowing anything up or levitating the Pentagon or anything like that, but it, it was just right. a precautionary thing because apparently these people in Canada got arrested and put in the slammer because they had, are you ready, ammonia and fertilizer in their home. Clear evidence Got that it. these were radical bombers. You know, so I thought, oh, yeah. gee, I don't have any fertilizer, but I'm sure they could cook up something.
1: Sure. <laughs> the Anarchist
2: Cookbook here, so uh, I suggested to members of my uh, affinity group, hey, why don't we take? Uh, Terry already had Terry, but I presume that is not his birth. Right. Hi, I'm Perry Arist, if you say, that, say it that way. It's clearly not who he was. And yeah. He wrote for our magazine and, and stuff. But, you know, maybe he was just dodging it for that reason. He certainly, at that time, I remember that I was still under the shadow of uh, uh, Alistair Crowley much more than I am today. And there was a place that Crowley said something to the effect of Someone just pointed. Oh, I think it's in Magic without Tears. One of the letters in there. Uh, Someone just pointed out to me that I might be a secret chief. So I may have been, you know, kind of referencing that because I don't believe any corporeal human being is a secret chief. But that's, you know, that's just me. You know, uh, his his thing was they can be corporeal or non-corporeal as they wish. But uh, Terry seemed like. very thoughtful but very human person who uh you know went went to the bathroom and liked hot dogs
1: you like hot dogs huh uh, yeah <laughs> so, so uh,
2: we hung out in the hippie district and uh uh um, all of us did i mean everything everything that i was involved in was part of the little five points hippie golden era of that of that period and uh There were all sorts of little shops and the places that you could get uh, edibles. It was sort of pre-vegan type, you know, uh, and uh, Uh his thing was hot dogs. Mine was uh, cheeseburgers. Cheeseburger, 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 Coke.
1: Both of which are excellent, excellent meals.
2: (laughs) I'm very happy that they're they're now recording food. Vegetarian stuff, not because I think that it's uh, healthier. I just, you know, I'm. I don't think I would uh, kill an animal myself. I'd be more likely to kill yeah. a person than an animal. I don't think yeah. I could get away with it on Fifth Avenue, unlike the chief, the non-secret yes. chief.
1: The non-secret chief. <laughs> so, so. so. Do you, do you think that they're actually talking to Terry Riz in the show? Is what he's saying sound like I, Terry Riz? Uh,
2: well well I um I'll pass on that, see season two, and uh, okay. I think that probably will will season one will whet your appetite on that. I, I really uh uh the short answer is yes, but there's also a lot of static. In this whole thing, and I'm sure you would agree with this, there's a signal-to-noise ratio, just like in radio waves. And and sometimes the noise seems like the signal, and sometimes the signal is dismissed because of the noise. Um, I think there's a mixture there. But uh, 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 what people who do field research, if they have a – how shall I put it – not a contact, that's the wrong thing, a communication experience with non-corporeal beings, it, uh, all that you learn from day one in a good magical setting is it ain't necessarily what it says it is.
1: Yes, absolutely. I Yes. The I, Ouija board
2: yes. can lie.
1: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the Ouija board lies.
2: And not only can it lie, it can lie convincingly. And it doesn't. It isn't Very. just a Ouija board. It's anything that uh, um, uh, that that involves communication. The most sane group of people, unfortunately, most of them are gone now, are the people that generated the the raw material. The L.L. the Lightlines people, who I uh, considered to be friends of mine, Don Elkins, the uh, the late. Eastern Airlines pilot from the late Eastern Airlines, and uh, Carla Root, right. a really good friend of mine. Um, and uh, the guy who's handling it now was the guy who told me, you're going to have to pick eventually uh, between the political stuff and the mystical stuff. You can't do both. And I was dismissive of that, but I have found that to be the case. So I don't do the political stuff anymore. I have opinions, but, you know, sure. I'm not a I'm a little old to be a street activist anyway, so, you know. Yeah. In any case, um, um, uh, I, I feel that uh, the, um, the communications that the LL people did was always in the context of we don't make any claims that what you see is what you get. What we claim is that it's genuine phenomena and that we can teach anyone to do it, which is, of course, precisely the claim that I make. Anyone who really works diligently with the secret cipher, the euphonauts will be able to do predictive things. My original hope with the first edition of that was I would get loads of people who read the book to be doing what What I initially did with it, which is use it themselves and predict UFO cases. That was a relatively modest goal at that point. And
1: yeah.
2: uh, to to date, I haven't uh, even seen that, much less this more extensive and expansive notion that any of these phenomena can be predicted because the cipher is part of the mystery itself, and the mystery itself is, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, Universal. Right. In other words, uh, you know, if you want to spot Bigfoot and somebody says it made the sound unk, I'd say right. unk, like UNC, uh, UNC, UNK, try that in the cipher. And if you come up with uh, 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 Pelier, Vermont, which probably is a fictional place, at least I hope so, uh, <laughs> 7 7 uh, to 2020. Uh, then I would make it my business to be in Pelier Vermont on the seventh day of the seventh month of next year. Uh, That's what people should be doing. Only one time if I uh, being uh, badgered into it on, I think, Gene Steinberg's program by Jim Mosley, may he rest in peace, uh, um, to make a prediction I made, you know, based on one of the cases that uh, that I was dealing with, an exact prediction of when there would be a UFO sighting over NASA headquarters in Houston. And there was, and I came back on the program and was ready to gloat, and they said, well, you know, I mean, people see stuff all the time. So I thought, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not in the psychic prediction business I'm in the no. I'm in the investigation business so if people want to work yeah. with it they'll find they'll find their own truth if they don't want to work with it then they'll find it an exciting and intriguing mystery that will remain a mystery
1: so Does that sound maybe or? no I, I think that's you know I try to I try to tell people that that you know there there are two truisms to do things that are forient to seek the 14, right, is that, <clears throat> number one, you'll be confused a lot. And you'll see things that you don't understand. And it, you can rationalize it, but you don't understand it. And the, the the second truism is that you will, over time, you will just come to your own understanding of it. That it, It's experiential, so you just kind of have exactly. to do it.
2: It, yeah. and also transformative. If you throw that in it is believe, transformative. you're right on the money. That's uh, yeah. uh if if you stick with it, uh, you may come up with something that is not communicable to others but will right. uh, be your truth and will be transformative for you. And I it's think that's true. you know, if you, you ask me how do you become a secret chief, well, first of all you probably die first, but other than that, Let's other avoid than that, that little part. trick that we will all do at some point or other, uh, except yep. uh, uh, Bob Wilson's daughter, may she uh, rest in ice, uh, who may be back, you know, we don't know. Uh, who knows? I once considered cryogenic internment, and then I decided uh, I probably will come back to uh, a planet inhabited by... Uh, the trumpeteers, no thanks. I think I will go
1: on. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs>
2: <laughs> invigorated.
1: How do you feel? You know, you <laughs> not invigorated. No, but one of the, one of the other one of the other things that I've noticed, and especially on the occultism side, is that. Well, there are two things that I noticed and this this is transformative right the number one, you can't you can't unsee what you've seen. And once you've seen it, you inevitably see it more. The first time you experience a ghost, it's mind-blowing and you can't unsee the ghost. but for whatever reason after that it, I think it changes you and you're now you now suddenly, them more whether it's a byproduct of you chasing it or whether it's an addiction to wanting to see it because you just want to blow your mind again and again and again whatever or you just i think by seeing it you change your perception and then yeah, you're exactly. more open to these things i mean the first ufo i ever saw for lack of a better term it was unidentified and in this case hovering about six inches above my roof after, it's a funny story, Um I was laying in bed, and I was reading, I think, A Choose Your Own Adventure or Some Silliness, and I was in elementary school. And I saw this bizarre white light hanging in front of my window. And, you know, I was scared, and, and I I hid under my blankets. It didn't go away. I tried to read, and it didn't go away. It just hung there. It was a bluish-white light. And eventually, I I was scared out of my mind, and so I ran across the hall to my parents' room. I got my dad, and I said, you know, you were in the Air Force. My grandfather was in the Air Force. You grew up on Air Force bases. You were in the Air Force. You know about things that fly. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've seen all kinds of crap that's flown and been all kinds of planes and whatever. And I said, well, there's something outside my window. I don't know what the hell it is. I, I need you to make it go away. So my dad got up in the middle of the night. He had an a Air Force issue a billy club baton, police baton, and he pulls it out, and he's like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to take care of this. And he's like, get behind me. I'm behind him. We go into my room, and it's gone. <laughs> and I asked, I asked I'm i 44 years old. I asked my dad about six months ago. I said, Dad, do you believe me, what I saw? And he goes, oh, Absolutely. I don't know what you saw, but I believe you saw something. Uh-huh. So the next yeah. morning, yeah. So the next morning, I'm in like fourth grade or fifth grade, right? The, ne- the next morning, um, I go to school, and it, luckily it was library day back when schools had libraries and librarians. <laughs> and so I go to the librarian.
2: What a scary statement that is.
1: Oh, sorry. it's, it's right. Back when school somebody w- something. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, they taught government and how it worked. We even had schoolhouse rock when a bill becomes a law. But um, yeah, and so I I go to the librarian and, and, you know, back then for those listeners who are a little younger, back then school librarians were not just librarians. I mean, they were librarians, right? But they were more like a gateway to information. Mm -hmm. So I go to the librarian and say, hey, I saw this weird thing outside my window because of course you've got to tell the story. I said, I want to know what, what it was. And the librarian says, oh, well, let me have a teachable moment. Here's the Dewey Decimal number for aircraft stuff. And I said, no, 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 no. no. I said, I, I have lived on an Air Force base. I love airplanes. I know what airplanes are. This was not an airplane. And she goes, oh, you want those books? And I'm like, yeah. Whatever those books are, show me. And she, instead of giving me the Dewey decimal number, she tells me precisely where to find them on the bookshelf. This is an elementary school library. So I go to the little spot. I could even walk there today, right now, if I went to my elementary school. It was at the bottom shelf of the last bookshelf. So I go, it sounds like a movie. I go in there, I, pull, I go pull the books out, it's like Messengers of Deception by Jacques Vallée, which a great book. Yeah, it's the it's the Heineck, Heineck book, and it's um, Mysteries of Time and Space by Brad Steiger. So I got all three. I took them home and I attempted to read them. Heineck was just too analytical. It, it just I could, it was dry, and a, a fourth grader I just could not read it. Right, I've read it now, but back then mm, yeah. I just couldn't do it. Uh, Messengers of Deception, amazing book, uh, plays into some of these things we're talking about, but it was it was too abstract. That the you know, Vali is arguing that these concepts that we have of things like the Men in Black, you know, and and some of these concepts that we have you know, they're attributable to this thing or that thing in the middle ages. And it's like, I, I just, I, I don't know enough to read that book. Right. So I read, I read mysteries of time and space and it, um, it blew my mind and as well it I did not. Yeah. And, and cause you know, brother Brad, uh, amazing writer and he had a good way of making it interesting and entertaining and i miss that guy amazing guy and i it completely blew my mind time vortexes and all this craziness you know aliens ufos ghosts it's all in there and i did not figure out what i saw i still have not to this day but it opened my mind And within a couple of years, I had already seen another UFO. I had had a ghost experience, you know? And so Mm -hmm. that having that event happen, not being able to explain it, seeking an answer, not finding an answer, but finding more questions. Suddenly I opened myself up and now I'm seeing shit all over the place. That's that's kind of how it works.
2: That's how it works. Exactly. It, um, I don't know whether it's that we change frequencies or that we simply become aware of stuff that we would ignore otherwise or whether it's uh, uh, something to do with vision as such. Right. Uh, But uh, the point is, you know, once you – and there is the notion, which I don't necessarily subscribe to, which is when you see them – they know you see them, and then you see them a lot. Sometimes,
1: I don't know if I, I subscribe didn't say- to that.
2: Well, it is, it is not an uncommon notion in yeah. uh, I, th- I th- these circles. And I'm not, you know, I really have no bottom line uh, dogmas on any of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, my bottom line is there is probably is no bottom line. And uh, yeah. Uh, when you peer into the abyss, just hope it doesn't peer back at you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, it's like, it's like for me, you know, when I was a little older and the whole Lazar thing happened, you know, I, I, I believe Lazar, I still do to this day. I believe that he mm. is accurately telling you what he saw. It, what he saw is what he thinks he saw. I don't know. But he, wow. I believe he absolutely is telling you what he saw and what he was told. That doesn't mean that they told him the truth. It just means that he's accurately p- portraying his experience. One of the reasons that I really, really believe him is that not long after that, when I was about 13, I saw a Lazar Sportster model hanging in the sky at about 20,000 feet Over my house. And it was literally like right out of the drawings. And the testers model. that I saw that thing. In the sky above my house. Walking the dog. But I think I only saw it. Because by that point. I was ingesting as much of that kind of stuff as I could. And I was looking up.
2: Well there's one. There are a lot of. Not a lot. There are a goodly number of. Uh, Lovecraft-influenced films that are not particularly good. A couple that are okay, but they're built into their time. But uh, I think it's in From Beyond, if I'm remembering the title correctly, where this guy builds this machine that essentially allows you, among other things, to see what's already there, which is these different beings and creatures and so forth. And it, it struck me when I saw the uh, the film for the 14th time or something at some point that that probably is a fair reflection of the, of the way I see it tentatively at this point in my life, which is they're all around us all the time, but right. they being amorphous and maybe literally amorphous um, – uh it, the thing is that unless you're attuned to it one way or another uh right. it it's as if it weren't there it's like uh there are uh the, the closest i can come up with that anyone could relate to is right now you're being bathed in cosmic rays but you know it's doesn't feel like rain it doesn't feel at all it's uh right. it's there and anyone who's at all literate will acknowledge that it's there I mean, there's radio waves all around us and all kinds of things and microwaves and uh, I've got a cell tower just, you know, within view of my domicile. So um, the the tower I can see, the waves I cannot because I'm not attuned to that. But if I were... using certain instruments i would certainly be able to hear it i think we're talking courtesy of microwaves right now um but harnessed microwaves. so i think that there are i think that there's a growing body of evidence that something approximating the um the uh, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct and that in fact The separation between the world that we choose to call reality or that most people choose to call reality and one or more other realities, which may have totally different rules of physics, totally different types of uh, living beings or non-beings or Mm non-living beings, whatever, uh, things that are unimaginable to us are still right, right here with us right now with you. over there and me over here and everywhere else it's just that you really don't necessarily have the uh, proper attunement to see them however just like the machine in the movie uh, some places have natural portals and there are created portals as well and if you're near those places like the uh, thing you were telling me about the uh We'll just call right. them the giant beings climbing the mountain at a the lit. same time. UFOs yes, were being. Yes. Yes. You probably were near a natural, um, the equivalent of that machine, and therefore things that were always there manifested for you, because yeah. you were able to 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 resolve them, just as you can uh, listen to the. Uh, sound of the big Bang just by you know pointing a radio telescope and having enough you know uh, education in that direction to recognize you know what the What's what that hand? particular noise is. I don't know whether it's true or not because that was not my interest at the time, but back in the old days of television when you put it on a blank channel and it was snow, um, uh, I was told that a certain percentage of the dots that were running across your your uh, cathode ray tube were from the big bang maybe i don't know sounds good and whether it's true or not that's uh, nevertheless we do have the afterglow of everything that has ever happened in the universe look back in time every time you look at the sky
1: that is true but yeah i I think it's all about perception that somehow uh, once once you go ahead
2: And and resolution. In other words, that's the way initiation works as well. You have the situation, and then you have the resolution. And the resolution can bring you to a greater understanding of yourself, of the universe, of life, whatever. But uh, it doesn't necessarily. Sometimes the magic works, and sometimes it doesn't. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's exactly... Uh, I think the point and why people who are involved in one or another of these areas are so resistant to it, that in and of itself merits study. Um, uh, One of the things that I've always wanted someone who is more qualified in sociology than, than I am to analyze why it is that in the 1940s, right after World War II, when people were used to, um, um, Uh, blackouts for defense purposes, and the Ground Observer Corps was coming into existence. Why when flying saucers, I'm not going to use the term UFOs, that term didn't even exist at that point. When flying saucers were first seen, there were only two explanations that occurred to people. That they were natural phenomena or hoaxes, or they were from outer space even though they were always seen in on or near the earth now if you stop and you know pull back from you know the uh, taking it for granted why would it even occur to people that these were things from outer space nobody ever said that about elves and fairies and ghosts right. and goblins and they've been around since people have been around at least but right. immediately it went to, if they're real, they're extraterrestrial, and the term is stuck. And I don't see why. You know, I mean, then yeah. it went to being more specific. They're from Mars. Well, Mars turned out to be probably not their point of origin, so it was Alpha right. Centauri. And then, you know, it keeps getting
1: deeper. They reticuli. Yeah, yeah
2: they did, Particular eyes. So I, I always say that they all come from Sirius C, Planet Three. I just make that up, but people people go, they nod sagely, like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> my my point, of course, is why go to Sirius Three C Two Four or whatever? Uh, until, because you're seeing these things. Right here, the same way that uh, elves and fairy lore and ghost lore and Bigfoot lore and Loch Ness, you know, go through the list. Mm-hmm. They're all here, and nobody is saying, oh, they must be from another planet. Maybe, and maybe maybe that's, you know, I mean, if there's an interdimensional travel, conceivably, if there are beings on other Physical planetary systems. Maybe some have mastered the ability to move beyond the speed of light and come here. And why they would come here in such numbers for so long and just doesn't make any sense at all.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, you're taking so much out of the equation, right? Yeah, I mean, mean, they could be time travelers. They who knows? It's almost a cop out.
2: But those, those type of answers only came along later when I um, uh, had a friend in Canada may still be with us, named Jean Duplantier, and he was in ufology for right. many years. And then he, he sort of did a farewell thing, although I think he got back into it because when you have the bug, you have the bug. But he said something I'll never forget. He said, it's like a long walk down an endless tube. And in a way, yeah, there you go. That's the problem. But if you just sort of say, well, you know, keep on walking, keep on observing, and you might find that the journey is worth it, you know, kind of a Castaneda sort of uh, solution, the journey to Zitland. (laughs)
1: No, I, I think it is. You're not really I mean, ever
2: going to get to Zitlán. I think is the point of that. But you, the, the journey yeah. is, is is worth it. It is for me. I, I think
1: it is. Yeah, I, I think it is because all along the way you experience things that at times defy logic. I mean, it, it, you know, I when I was in college, I, I was in a small college town, and there was a there was a town not far away, and the guy who's the handyman in our um, apartment complex, they, he knew of my interest in in UFOs and all this. And so one day he slid a a newspaper under my door and which was bad for, you know, me keeping my my apartment warm, but I got a newspaper out of it. And basically they, in the town just uh, to the west of us, kind Of the southwest of us, um, a place called Dixon, they had had a mass UFO sighting and they'd seen this cigar shaped UFO that ran down the, the rail lines, which is something that happens oddly. But you know, the entire police force had seen it, half the town had seen it, yada yada. And so, you know, me and my girlfriend at the time, we thought to ourselves, well, gee, you know, we were listening to our Bell and like, you know why don't we go out there and see if it comes back? And, you know, the likelihood of that happening is very low, but what the hell? So we go and drive out into the cornfields and we're, we're on this little, you know, a uh, farm road out in the middle of nowhere. And at that time there was no lights, there were no people. It's different now, but back then there was nothing there. And so we, we were sitting out on the hood of the car kind of laying on the hood of the car, watching this, the, the sky. And we start seeing these lights and, and they're flying around and, you know, they were flying around each other, kind of dogfighty kind of thing. And then, you know, one of them uh, separated from the pack. We counted 17 separate lights at the height of it. And it's making squares and it's making triangles and circles and geometric shapes. And we just looked at each other like, what is that? And, you know, the aerodynamics will not allow you to make a square, right? You can't do that, a tight square in a plane. I guess you could do it in a helicopter, but this, this was too high for that. And then two of them came down, and there were these two radio masks, because Dixon, for whatever reason, has some strange properties in the ground, which makes it exceptionally good for radio transmissions. In fact, there was a, a base there, well, not a base, an installation owned by the CIA that broadcast, uh, um, what's the old propaganda sh- uh, station? Um, the Voice of America. And so the primary Voice of America transmitter was not far from what Voice we of
2: America is not propaganda. Let me, let me interfere with you there at the risk of being rude. It is the Voice of America.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, when it
2: had Ed Murrow as the voice of America person, it was. Oh yeah. The
1: voice of, managed yeah, he, managed by NBC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah well, the, it was owned by the CIA. It was managed and and staffed by NBC. I think it's hilarious. Well, anyway, there are these two radio maps and and two of these things came down. And they were going back and forth, weirdly, back and forth between these two radio masks a couple miles apart. Go down, roll over, come back, roll over, go down, roll over, come back, there. And you could kind of see in the moonlight that they were triangular. And they look like the classic triangular UFO, lights on the corners, bright light on the front, the whole thing. And... I mean, we watched this for hours. It was crazy. And eventually, one of them passed the radio tower, and, and we were on a straight line, and it was coming toward us. And we looked at each other, and my girlfriend says to me, I don't want to get abducted. I don't want the anal probe. We're out of here. So we got in the car, and we're like driving 90 miles an hour, you know, or whatever. But it, you know, that was another case where it shouldn't have happened. The, mathematically, it happening two days in a row like that never should have happened. But watching that, it blows your mind. And again, it changes your perception. Do I know what was making a square in the sky? No. There are an infinite possibility, number of possibilities on what that was. But I'm looking for it. You know, I've changed my perception. So I'm looking up Searching for that now, and going through that that experience, it just makes you want to do more, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, you yes, your girlfriend no, and that's that's the yeah. range of, of things that you get there. You know, that's uh, uh, some people uh, uh, are you know afraid of being abducted, and the, the first thing they think of is the legendary uh, rectal
1: probe, which rectal probe yes.
2: Yeah, well, you know that's uh, something that men of my age are kind of used to with their physician, uh, you know, making yeah. sure their prostate is okay. So it's you not like it. uh, you know the, the 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 central meaning of the experience if you are abducted. However, uh, I would you know the first thing I would do in a situation like that is note if there is a pattern to the sequence of geometrical shapes because in that there might be something encoded specifically for you but that's just you know that's the way i think about this that it's that it's all connected wow. to the observer that uh, yes. the observer and the object of the object of attention it, uh, are interactive in some uh difficult to define but important sense i don't know whether you you, know, you noticed any pattern or not but the first thing i could think of was the you know that uh, pattern of Tones in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is right. very Heinic influ- and Ballet-influenced, actually. Sure. Early I Ballet. Did not,
1: I did not. I, I was too young and too inexperienced oh, yeah. and too mind-blown to, to record the sequence. I just watched it in awe. yeah if i were with
2: a girl in a dark cornfield out in the middle of nowhere i would have my mind elsewhere actually but you know
1: Uh i mean there
2: are there are many secrets and there are many secrets to be divined as it were you know we have never gotten to the um what you call the golden age of ufology and i feel kind of bad about that because there are there's a lot to be said about that and uh i went to the um what was it, the 50th anniversary of the National UFO Conference and, mm-hmm. and it's amazing that everybody there with one exception everybody there had started out as ye old extraterrestrial hypothesis people and had become uh, some variation of the things we've been talking about in other words, they had evolved on it, now these are just the people who are you know, still with us and uh who have stayed more or less in the field at least enough to uh, to come to a conference and in the in the point of origin, which was Cleveland, Ohio, 1964, when we started. But uh, um, somebody mentioned at the at the gathering that it was a shame that ufology wasn't uh, uh, as coherent and tight as it was at that time and I sure. had confronted with that question I thought no actually this is the golden age of ufology it's just gone mainstream when yeah. I was first in ufology nobody knew what the term meant they'd say ufoology which I, every now and then I do a program somebody says so how long have you been in ufoology and I think oh, I'm ufool so let me tell you about ufoology but um, um, now uh, most of the jargon, the terms, the notions, even things as Utre as we're talking about right now, it's not like everybody believes any of this. But right. lots and lots of people are familiar with it, and yeah. apparently, according to uh, the Gallup organization, uh, uh, some millions of people in this country alone, and they're seen all over the world uh have had ufo type experiences and of course they're not asking did you also see uh you know humanoid beings that live in elf hills i mean that's not on the same agenda but um i think that you know there's more awareness now it makes it difficult for people that are this is not a put-down term, although it was for John Keel. People who are fan-ish, you know, that, that they're like yeah. fandom people and they're fans of this stuff, uh, they may feel that it's gotten you know, too widespread to be uh, cool. It's no longer cool. It's fu- not fire. It's, uh, it's passe. Or right. it's uh, out there among the That's great true. unwashed, whoever the great unwashed may be. And I think well I'm I was always hoping it would get out there to you know, to greater numbers of people because uh it it's not just gonna be a single generation thing. It's been going on for a very long time, will continue to go on and we certainly haven't solved it, case solved, go on to, you know, something else. So I'm very pleased. I of course some of the uh manifestations shall we say like uh, some of these uh, quote history unquote channel programs uh, uh, and right. even I think on the science channel they really do distort what the phenomena is all about I've even had people tell me you know that oh well the x-files is all about extraterrestrials and it's ultra well yeah but it it, it alerts a, a vast number of people to some of the parameters of what goes on that were otherwise not going to, to see it at all in this Project Blue Book thing, which I have not bothered to see because I was around when Project Blue Book was around and, you know, the real right. one. And uh, it's uh, old hat to me. I always say the government may – if you pry the secrets of UFOs from the government, you will have less than I can tell you about in Secret Cipher the UFOs. And that's not a boast. It's just that you know, it was Project was like three people and a secretary. I mean, it was these three people at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. You know, that's it.
1: Yeah.
2: And you know, they I had think... a Pentagon monitor who I talked to many years later, and he said, "Oh, it was just a CIA thing." And he was, you know, um, he was well informed. Let's put it that way. But the, the, that, that's ridiculous well, there, because the CIA came into existence around the same time that the term flying saucer came into existence. Yeah. Right. 1947? Yeah. With the, the, a future, the, a future uh, chairman of the board of the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena uh, as the first head of the CIA, which is interesting in and of itself. It is. But, yeah, um, uh, what was his name? He's long gone. Anyway, the people that were the stellar personalities of, of that period are very interesting to talk about, but they were, yeah. you know, played to a much smaller audience. Much smaller. I got an excited phone call in the middle of the night like this uh, from Jim Mosley, who often called me in those days when long-distance rates were insane, and he said, "You right. got to meet this guy, John Keel. Said, Who's that?" Don Keel, he is really something. He's writing a book about this. So I always went to New York on New Year's Eve, and uh, for New Year's Eve, and uh, uh, he excitedly introduced me to Keel. And Keel was, if anybody among us was from another reality, it was Keel. Keel in his yeah. books is, you know, like he has the signature of people who used to write for Argosy and True and other men's magazines of the 1950s and 60s you know, because that's where he started but right. when you talk to him sitting with a little group of people in a hotel room in the middle of the night he would—he was he was the mystery he could conjure it up just the way he talked And uh, he was
1: a storyteller uh,
2: yes he was a storyteller. He wasn't quite as good as Gray Barker on paper, but he right. was in person the best I know of to convey the feeling of it and Ironically, the reason I championed uh the the movie uh version of his book is because while the facts are really, really mixed up and also confuse some of Gray and Jim's hoax phone calls to poor John Keel staying in a hotel. Nevertheless, um, the movie conveys the mood of what was going on in West Virginia in the late 1960s. The mood is is just as important as the, you know, to factually list the events that happened and try to dissect was this really a man in black or was this somebody Gray Barker had hired to pose as a man in black, as somebody once said about a man in black that I uh... confronted but um, um, which i wouldn't even say if there weren't like twenty other people with me at the time but um, uh... I, I guess getting that sense of wonder that that mood and capturing yeah. that in a film is something that unless you get out in the field or experience it vicariously through something like the, the hell um, you are you're not going to really know you're just like you said about Dr. Hynek's book when you were a kid, uh, too dry. And I would say, uh, I only knew Hynek slightly, but I would say he was too dry. I mean, he was a nuts and bolts guy. He was the Air Force contract uh, scientist for UFO stuff. When he started to think there was something to it, they fired him. You know, I mean, so uh, it's uh, obviously their level of uh, wanting it to be an open-ended discussion was uh, limit, very limited. So yeah. um, I, I'm not big so, on the government conspiracy thing. I don't think the government knows its front leg from its rear.
1: <laughs> so, So tell me more about these hoax phone calls. I, I I heard you on an interview uh-oh, once uh-oh. talk about this.
2: Gee, I got I gotta go. It's really getting. I'm sorry. <laughs> did, hello, hello. We we've gotten
1: disconnected. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard you talk about this once. Uh, <clears throat> I gotta hear this. So, okay, so tell me about the hoax phone calls.
2: Okay, it, it really takes some setting up. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to appreciate it. First of all, most people no, know no problem today. People will not know who Gray Barker or Jim Mosley is. As hard as Jim tried to become, you know, a thing. I mean, he would, you know, every issue of Saucer News, his magazine, he would list the number of his public appearances. He was just, you know, he was kind of a news whore, uh, so to speak. But uh, then, so am I. So, you know, no. Anyway, Jim was a. wealthy man about town and uh, in New York and New, uh, the adjacent area of New Jersey and uh, had an interest in UFOs and grave robbing in South America somehow he hooked right. up with this West Virginia <laughs> folklorist and uh, 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 one of the rare college graduates in ufology of that period, Gray Barker who um, there are an endless number of stories about him, but he, he lived in Clarksburg, West Virginia, which was in the heart of the persistent phenomena country starting, right. well, I don't know when it started, but coming to public awareness with the Flatwoods Monster case, which he investigated personally, and the, uh, the, the original Mothman cases, at least the ones that were labeled Mothman and the men in block associated with it, and the UFOs associated with it, and the Silver Bridge disaster, which was associated with it, rightly or wrongly. And uh, they became very close uh, friends of a a sort. I mean, they had – but they were both pranksters. I mean, there are a couple of things that I've said – on this program, uh, like the thing about the Voice of America, I think you took it straight, but it was meant as humorous, uh, because uh, I think we are the Voice of America. uh, uh, But the the point is that uh, they were uh, serious about the subjects that they were interested in, and Gray had a broad uh, interest in Everything from science fiction, which at that time was more like a cult than a mass interest, you know uh, um, and uh, uh, to um, to UFOs and monsters and things that at that time were uh, considered no no especially in a little town in West Virginia. he also sure. had some other crosses to bear, so he was a um, he was a um, I don't know what you would call it, but he was a distributor. He was a movie distributor for okay. the part of West Virginia that he was in. So that, that, that's what he did with his uh, day job, so to speak. But he developed a little magazine called A Saucerian, and Mosley had a magazine originally called Nexus, but became Saucer News. And then... A series of other names uh, uh, ending with Saucer Smear, which tells you probably all you need to really know about it. Uh, In other words, it was a tongue-in-cheek thing. But uh, but when it got around to the the subjects that they were interested in, they were both – how shall I put it? They saw that there was an underlying reality in it something which I discussed with them both, separately and together, at great length. In fact, Mosley was my neighbor in Key West for some enchanted period of time. So, you know, we've discussed it a lot, and, you know, they were earnest about that. But they were also pranksters, and when Jim would go down to West Virginia and visit Gray, especially during a period where there was something going on, in, with with UFOs or related phenomena. They would right. get roaring drunk. I mean roaring drunk. Plus, uh, as they said in this little filmlet that I once saw, we take this herbal substance and absorb it into <laughs> our substance and let it guide us <laughs> to what, what it may. So when an earnest uh, saga-slash-Argosy-slash-Men's Magazine uh, guy like John Keel, who had no sense of humor. That is certainly the case he had. He even wrote a very funny book, but he just, as a person, he wasn't, he was uh, anhedonic, you know, he just didn't seem to uh, take pleasure in anything. Um, uh, For people like Mosley and Barker, that was just too good to pass up. So they knew he was there investigating on Gray's turf, you know, the uh, the mm-hmm. cases. And if you've seen the uh, the movie uh, uh, The Mothman Prophecy, uh, Richard Gere playing John Keel, a very unlike mm-hmm. Gray. <laughs> uh, he keeps getting these phone calls in the movie. Well, I've had those phone calls from Gray and Jim. Uh they they would call up and there would be weird noises on the phone and there would be weird voices saying you will this is one that is a quote one that I got. You will discontinue this project or reap
0: the results.
2: <laughs> With good sound effects. And of course okay. someone like Keel you know, that's Indrid Cole giving me a call. Well, yeah, maybe but uh, probably Indrid Barker and Indrid uh, Mosley were oh, tying boy, one on and true. having a really, really, really good time. And they did other things. Sometimes they got in trouble for it, though. One time they wrote the infamous, just like me, the infamous Straith letter on um, a Department of Defense stationery, which somehow Gray got a hold of and that caused oh, wow. all kinds of. So there's that aspect of it. But remember what I said about the people involved become part of the phenomena. I'm going to tell you right. one story and it, it, it typifies what happens in that case. One time, okay. Gene Steinberg, who then lived in New York uh, and was part of Jim Mosley's circle of, of people was at Mosley's apartment, house, whatever. Uh, at the time he moved around a bit um, mostly in a custody, a prolonged custody battle for his daughter. Um, uh, he got roaringly drunk. Actually, I knew Jim for, from the age of 34 until he died in his 80s, and I never saw him draw a sober breath. It was just not part of his deal. And yet he was a gentleman. Right. He was a Princeton man, and he just you know, always wore a suit. He was just that sort of person. Jane Smoker sure. still lived into his 80s, you know, and, uh, but uh, in any case, um, which is not advice, it's, it's you know, just he was always running wow. on empty. He was very morbid personally, as he would have okay. told you. But anyway, so he gets roaringly drunk. I don't believe Gene drinks. I've never seen him drink. Um, and according to Gene, back at the time, because he called me uh, about it, he said um, – did you hear about this Wanakew, New Jersey flap? I said, of course, it's been in, you know, all the clipping services, which is what we had back in those pre-internet days. Um, um, right. Yeah, there was a lot of sightings around the Wanakew Reservoir and policemen's side. Blah, blah, blah. He said, well, Jim, before that, any of that happened, he got really drunk and decided to pull a prank on the police in Wanakew, New Jersey. So he called them and said, what's going on at the reservoir? I'm seeing a flying object, and it has ping-pong ball landing gear underneath it, and it's hovering over the reservoir, or something to that effect, and hung up. And I would never have told this story in his lifetime, but uh, nevertheless, actually I did once, but on a program that he was on. So anyway, and, and Gene said, I don't remember that, which is, you know, we all have our our peculiarities. But I remember, and my memory is undimmed by time. In any case, Jim created a a hoax, one of many, but the hoax turned into a real, genuine UFO flap with a lot of witnesses. So, which is the phenomena and which is the ufologist? Is Jim the cause or is, is... Is it something that he intuited and thought that he was hoaxing and it was actually real? Or none of the above? I don't know, but I will tell you that I've never done a hoax. But I did, back in the day, do citywide Atlanta-area UFO sky watches. And I would advertise them in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and use my home phone number, which was insane. But nevertheless, it was on arbitrary... Nights, they would say, citywide UFO uh, skywatch, 8 p.m. to midnight or whatever it was at the time. This is in the as early as the 1960s, I think, and Uh there were always sightings. Some of them good sightings, some of them uh, uh, fairly close encounters. None of them were landing cases, but they were. uh, people would call me and, and, and give me fairly detailed descriptions of objects that were, well, not dissimilar from what you were describing your experience. And the only thing right. I can think of is I said there was a Skywatch, and the UFOs obligingly showed up because they weren't. You know, there were lights in the sky cases. Obviously, my phone never stopped ringing the whole, you know, until like 2 in the morning, much to my parents' distress. But, you know, <laughs> they, they, they spawned me. They had to live with it. What can I say? Yep. So um, um, I would uh, – one of them, I, I said, could it have been an airplane? And this guy, earnest-sounding, he has an intake of breath and then indignantly said, I'm a veteran. I thought, well, I'm just going to take the okay. calls and write them down, whatever. But um, I, I didn't know exactly what he meant. But, I mean, it's like these were sincere people for 90% of the time. There were a couple of pranks, uh-huh. but you know, nothing serious. And people were seeing – a complex objects just above the uh, the power lines, uh, and you know, and more distant things by the hundreds. Sure. Simply because wow. I put a ten-word ad in the classified ads for that day, the day before. That's it. I mean, you know, where is the phenomena? Did I create the the the, uh, the phenomena? Did Jim create the Wanakew flap, or is there some interaction between the? Hmm, Percipient and the perceived I'm not sure if I said that right But I think you get the point I don't know But I do know there is a definite You know interaction there And that is so significant And so far beyond What most people talk about When they talk about Flying saucers from outer space
1: Yeah I mean it's a real question
2: Yeah it is indeed And I I have no answer to that Except that Interestingly enough, that's an experiment anyone could do. Harder to do today, I would say. We live in a um, in a difficult time, and one might not want to give out one's home phone number for something of that sort at this okay. point. Uh, but nevertheless, I, know.
1: I, I think you, it could be done, especially with social media. I think it's possible. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. If you did it with social media, the thing is. That there are many gray barkers <laughs> on yes. social media, and and filtering signal from noise. There, I mean, we're talking about
1: it's difficult.
2: Uh, it, Atlanta is now a city of <laughs> seven million people. It was then a city of half a million. I mean, it's it, it, the growth has been largely because okay. of desegregating, which has rewarded it with uh, an influx of people and sports teams and all sorts of good things that uh, the South in general, in Atlanta in particular, were not, uh, in the bad old days, were not uh, not beneficiaries of. So it was possible then, and most of the people were, you know, were straight up, good old boys from here. That was your average caller. And uh, yeah. that's not what you would get today, I don't think, not here, not anywhere. Nor nor could I afford to buy an ad in the journal con. However, you know, I could put it on my Facebook page, but just like anything else, I mean, I reach thousands of people there. And while uh, Mr. Zuckerberg calls them my friends, I think maybe 10 of them are my friends. The rest are people that I consider. uh, uh, Maybe I shouldn't say this. Well, I already said it. Subscribers, you know, they read my stuff. And sometimes they comment on it, and sometimes they check the like box, and sometimes they check an angry box or whatever. But uh, um, clearly nobody has 5,000 friends. So it's
1: it's a community. To me, I see the people that follow me as more of a community, and there's some like-mindedness, at least for certain subjects. So I post things they respond you know we share ideas and that that's what we do it you know the the word friend is 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 relative you know i see it more as community right
2: yeah that, that that's very well said i think that that actually is the case although i do think that a lot of people are relying on the social media so called as a right. substitute for having in-person friends and they live a rather lonely existence and I, I i hate to say it but i think it's younger people who are more uh you know inclined to believe the uh that uh, someone that they uh, they exchange emails with is is a close personal friend because right. if they don't have any interpersonal actions on a on a real uh, in person basis, they don't even know the person. Person could be a different person right. altogether. Um, you know, sure. so I make yeah, a good. point of using my uh, my birth name on almost everything that I do, and uh, yeah. everything that I do now. I do have a an, a, a, um, a magical name that was given to me by my most important teacher, Michael Bertio, in of Chicago, and because he gave it to me. On certain formal documents, I might use the, you know, the name tauser Hasarim, which right. is 171 in the cipher, if anyone is interested. Uh, so, um, um, I, I think it's better when people use their, you know, yeah. their real identity. And, you know, let it be out there, and it doesn't mean you have to give out your Social Security number or your home address, because we, as I said, we live in troubled times. and. Yeah who knows who's going to go postal at our door, you know, so that is the thing. Anyway, you said that what happens with... (laughs) Yeah, I do too. I I, I think that if it is a community, um, maybe that the compromise is to once in a while have a convention or a conclave or something that
1: brings the people... Hmm? I want to have a conclave. I really do. Well, that
2: would that would be good i mean
1: yeah.
2: there's a tendency to do that i used to be in science fiction fandom until it got so big that that became total you know the same problem it became impersonal and also expensive right. and i'm poor so you know that's yeah like uh i mean we have one of the biggest here in atlanta the dragon con which started out yep. i remember when when um when convention, science fiction conventions here, were—I uh, remember the day that we uh, Deep South Con—we broke a hundred people, and we were so happy. It's unbelievable that a hundred people would show up at a science fiction convention. Of course, now you—you know—you got a, a thousand people that are guards and ticket takers, and
1: right.
2: you know, tens of thousands of people there. And back in the day, that only happened at WorldCon just not my deal so but if you get you know people that are interested in what you're doing and what they're doing and get it together um i think there's probably some kind of upper limit when it becomes yeah. impersonal or when alternately the 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 authors or producers or whatever it is and the fans become separate groups you know that's yeah something that I saw gradually happen Uh, (laughs) famous science fiction writers famous in the circle of science fiction readers which was small then would show up at these conventions and you know we would hang out but then it became they had special rooms and they concealed which rooms they had and then I had one famous writer whose name I will not mention but who said something when I was I and a group of fans were in his room and an admirer of his work and he ended the evening with really drunk and saying, "Out audience, and I was with a, a friend, his name's George Wells, he's been a fan for many, many years, and has a thicker skin than me. We got outside the door and he said, well, now I know what I am, an audience. And I
1: thought, yeah.
2: well, yeah. I had something I,
1: then, some more happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I... uh, Maybe I'm uh, too wrathful, but uh, I I thought that was so shoddy that, you know, he was on my no-read list from then on. I I, I I did something similar. Good (laughs) for you. Good for me. Good for (laughs) all of us ordinary folks who are just out here trying to do the work.
1: Exactly. No, something similar happened to me, and... You know it, yeah. It, that was that day was when I stopped reading anything this person wrote. I just, yeah, I was like, you know what? I pay your bills, so I put my hard-earned money into your pocket. So if you're gonna act that way, I want nothing to do with it. It's just did wrong. you actually
2: <laughs> say that to the person, or did you just no? Because I wish that I that. had. I wish that I had said something to <laughs> I this wish guy. I yeah uh you know, like oh, uh pretty much what what George said, which I thought was you know he meant it as comic irony, but irony, and I you know, well, that's why I am an audience well I'm, he's not, and I'm not we're people, that's right, and the people that I'd... if we didn't exist, this guy would be unknown, and since genre writers tend to only be able to write in genre uh That's just the way it is. Uh, He wasn't uh, Truman Capote. You know, he was science fiction genre, well-known, had won the usual awards. Thank God almighty that I never met Philip K. Dick because he's my great hero as a writer, and I love all of his stuff. I've read every single book that he ever wrote. But from reading stuff about him, I think I would have gotten along with him in person for about five minutes. So it's, it's fortunate. <laughs> there are people oh, yeah. that are like that. Um, a friend of mine once said that trying. he was an occultist, and he was trying to uh, differentiate. He said, Frater is somebody that I feel like I could have hung out with. Crowley is somebody that I think... I could read, but I probably wouldn't spend more than five minutes with because he was a snob. I said,
1: mm, yep. I think you yep. you've hit <laughs> it on the head. Yes. <clears throat> well, with that being said, I have many more questions, but hopefully um, I can get you to come back on again. <laughs> we can go through my myriad of other questions, but it's getting very late for you, and we've reached our time limit, so Thank you so well, much for coming on.
2: Okay. Can, um, can I plug myself, or are you going to plug me? Uh, you
1: I, I you used, plug I to, you.
2: Okay. Please, please read my book. Please read Secret Cipher of the Euphanauts. And if you haven't, I have a new one out called God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, which <laughs> is very gonzo. And the title belies what it's all about. But if you want to just see what I have to say, I used to give you know a URL or whatever, but sure. now I've discovered that since I've been on the Internet since before it was the Internet, there are thousands of entries, not all of them complimentary and not all of them right, but my name is Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Greenfield, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, Google me, and if you don't like me, send me a nasty email. I get off on you.
1: <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. In, in all the people I've interviewed on the show, I think that's the best plug ever. <laughs> i got to tell you, that that's, that that's a good one. <laughs> well, I'm I like glad that.
2: it's I'm glad that you guys are my publisher because, you know, I couldn't think of anybody better to, to do it. Aww. So thank you so much. And well,
1: thank you. If you want me
2: to come on again, all you need to do is ask and give me a little time to fit it into oh, my not-very-busy schedule.
1: <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, when, you know, when you're a writer and you you talk to a publisher, I'm a writer, you know, when you talk to a publisher, you know, you put a lot of trust in the publisher and the publishers putting a lot of trust in you and it, it's a relationship. And, you know, I'm, I'm very honored to publish your books and I'm very proud to publish your books. And, you know, not all of them, I don't publish all of them, but the ones that I publish, I'm, I'm very proud to have that association. So, you know, thank you. And I, I, it's, I know it's a love fest for a second, but you know it, it's good stuff
2: sync sync. I just thought this is beginning to be a love fest. We better quit <laughs> yes, yeah well I, <laughs>
1: That's bad podcasting. Uh,
2: I'm, I'm I'm very very <laughs> glad to to have the association, and I hope that it continues yeah, yeah,
1: on to infinity and beyond yes, and beyond all right, well, that was an amazing uh podcast episode uh we will have more coming soon um hopefully ron will free up his schedule and uh come along too because i'm sure he would have had amazing questions so we'll save that for the next one there will be a next one i promise um thank you for listening and yeah if you like the podcast uh, like us on itunes or whatever you can find us on itunes well you know how to find us you're listening to the damn podcast um, if you want to, if you want to interact with me and Ron, uh, we're on Facebook, just put in my name. There's only two of us. It'll be obvious which one is, which, uh, the other Olaf Phillips is a great guy. Um, and if you reach him by accident, he'll send you to me. We have a club. Um, and you know, com. uh, please, please read, uh, Alan's books, the complete cipher of the UFO knots. It's not that expensive and uh, support an author um what else am i gotta say uh, buy the magazine uh have a good night um as i always say uh be excellent to one another good night
0: thank you for listening to paranoia radio hosted by Olaf phillips and ron Patton. sponsored by paranoia magazine read it now Paranoia Magazine.com Intro theme, The Guide, is composed by Scott Moon, scottmoon.net. Outro theme, Fighting Trousers, is by Professor Elemental, professorelemental.com. Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo, host of Cinema Insomnia. Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at osi74.com. We are resuming control. For now.